Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Joe and Todd here with just one quick note before uh, we get you to your episode. So some of you um, have given us feedback that says, oh, I would really love to give you some money, but I always forget <laughs> because... So many people are telling us this every day. Every say, day people say, you? I really want to give you money for doing your podcast because I know that you're two uh, guys that are you know trying to support your families and, uh, and, and uh, so... I would love to give you some money, but the problem is that I'm always uh, listening to the podcast when I'm not sitting in front of my desk, uh, able to um, click on the link to go to Patreon. So we have a couple of ideas for you. Idea number one is you could pause this and then wait in agony until you get home and then <laughs> go to our website and uh, click on the support us link and then make a donation on Patreon. Uh, or... You could make a little note uh, on your phone uh, and say, remind me to do this thing when I get home. Uh, pay these guys some money. Um, you can also, uh, if you're really daring, you could just go to the show notes right inside of your podcast app, uh, and it will say, support us on Patreon. And if you tap on that, it will take you to the page. Um, you tap on the little button where it looks like you would tap to give us some money. Um, it says $1 is the... The sort of baseline, you can delete that one dollar and put, you know, you could delete the one and put a five in its place, or you, you could, could stick some zeros after. You could it, just slip whatever. some zeros right after the one. <laughs> <laughs> really, we're begging for money. We're hoping that we will get tens of dollars each month. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's our goal to help with some hosting fees uh, and again some some equipment upgrades. And if this happens, we will have some super secret bonus content that only our supporters will know about. <laughs> and we or will at least have access to ha- or have access to. Yeah, we may tease non-supporters with the secret bonus content once we know what it is. But that's teasing like a in like a good-hearted way, not like tease like in a, you know. Yes, yeah. Not we don't want we don't want to tease you. We just want to tease you so uh if you feel it in your heart so that you could spare a dollar a month or more feel free to go to the patreon uh page which you'll find in the links in the show notes or you can go to uh, protagonistpodcast.com to find out how to do that so thank you and enjoy the show and i like crawled like barely crawled into my bed and like canceled all my meetings for the night and i'm like i'm done and then i watched I read comics for like three hours and then I watched Netflix for like five hours. And then, and then like by like t- 10 o'clock at night, I was all better. The, the healing power of comic books. Yeah. And Netflix. <laughs> Hello everyone. And welcome to the protagonist podcast. I'm Joseph Drowski here with Todd Mack. And each week we look at a great character and a great story. This week we are also joined by Kirsta Christensen. Hello. I'm Kirsta Christensen. I'm an academic librarian at Brigham Young University, uh, specifically a cataloger, which is kind of like the other librarians think you're a geeky, geeky if you're a cataloger. <laughs> um, and my credentials for being here are that I really like the Scarlet Pimpernel and I wouldn't shut up about it on Todd's page. And so he told me to come be a guest. <laughs> I was also told, I also have on good record from various sources that you are one of the smartest people that many people know. So well, then I think it's a safe. total privilege to have yeah. you on the show. <laughs> no pressure to nope, live up to none that, at all. Right? Yeah. No. Just, just let it show. <laughs> uh, today, today we're talking about Sir Percy Blakeney, Sir Percy Blakeney, from the 1982 film 
of The Scarlet Pimpernel. Blakeney is played by Anthony Andrews, and the film was directed by Clive Donner. Uh, This was a special television film, and it won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Costume Design. It was also nominated for Outstanding Outstanding Drama Special and for Outstanding Art Direction. And the film's uh, storyline, it blends in a couple plots from novels by the Baroness Imuska Orsi. Orsi. uh, Everyone says Orsi, but I think... There's a quote from her where she says it would be O R apostrophe T S E Y, so Ortse. Okay. I think is what it kind of looks like. I'm uh, sorry, this is totally like sending us off the rails, but doesn't it kind of look like the way that Gollum would say orc? <laughs> Orcsies, <laughs> just saying. <Yes. laughs> um, and the the two books are the Scarlet Pimpernel and one of its many sequels called El Dorado. I think mm-hmm. she wrote was it 14. Sounds about right. Yeah, 14 different Scarlet Pimpernel novels. And why a Hungarian writer writing about France in English gives her novel a Spanish title, I don't know. (laughs) Is it about El Dorado? (laughs) I mean, that would be cool if it were like a book about... About uh, so. Percy and Marguerite, like going off and looking for the the fabled city of El Dorado, that would be a cool. That would be a great read. All right. Well, as uh, we've said, this is about uh, the Scarlet Pimpernel, which you may or may not be familiar with. This is an interesting figure, I think, within popular culture, in that the influence is massive. And actually, I'd say there's a fairly loyal following for various versions of the Scarlet Pimpernel story, because it's been adapted a lot. But at the same time, there's probably a fair number of people who have never heard of the Scarlet Pimpernel. So it's it's kind of a weird uh, limbo space. The short version of the plot is that uh, during the reign of terror in France, there is an English aristocrat who uh, goes by a double identity of the Scarlet Pimpernel and rescues the aristocracy uh, so they will not lose their heads at the guillotine. And the story just kind of follows um, his adventures. And as I said, there's a number of novels and then multiple very, you know, film adaptations. There's a couple different musicals that have been done on it. Television, uh, radio. Yep. So that sounds interesting. You can find lots of uh, Scarlet Pimpernel material on Amazon, and we'll have links for some of those in the show notes. But specifically, we are looking at this 1982 film adaptation. Uh, But from here on out, it can be spoiler heavy. So if you think you are going to go out and watch the film before you listen any farther, do that now. All righty. Kirsta, how did you come across the Scarlet Pimpernel? So uh, this film was produced in 1982. I did not watch it in 1982. Um, I was not watching a lot of television when I was a toddler. But um, I think I think my mom must have taped it off television at some point. Maybe it was Bless on our PBS. mothers. Maybe Bless was, our saint mothers. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I feel like it was vaguely educational. Um, and so, yeah, I just ended up watching it at some point, I think when I was a preteen. And... I, I really liked it, and then I would probably watch it about every other year or so, along with you know Jane Austen stories and in regular rotation and various <laughs> other documentaries and stuff. I was a really <laughs> nerdy child, um, and and then as I got older and started to uh, learn more about kind of literary criticism, I started noticing some kind of plot devices that I really really love, and then realizing how many of them show up in the Scarlet Pimpernel. So I kind of doubled back around and was able to analyze my love for the Scarlet Pimpernel. So. <laughs> What about you, Todd? Uh, I have no memory of uh, my pre my pre Scarlet Pimpernel life. It's um, <laughs> I, I mean, I was born in 1981, 
Um, and I imagine that I probably, my mom taped it off of TV very soon after it came out and it was on our shelf and I watched it a lot of times when I was a kid. It was one of my favorite movies to watch with my brothers. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I haven't, I hadn't seen, I watched it today. I had not seen it for quite a while. Uh, but I have always, always had like a kind of a soft spot in my heart. So I was very excited when Kirsta started talking about uh, Scarlet Pimpernel. I thought that would be a fantastic podcast, and I've, very, I've been very excited about doing this. So I don't know the story nearly as well as uh, uh, some other people in our present in our present <laughs> company. <laughs> you can't quote entire scenes. You can't sing uh, the music. <laughs> no, but but I'm surprised at how much of the. Um, I mean, there there were there was almost nothing in the film that that I thought. Oh, I forgot that that was in this film. Like I knew exactly what was going to happen. I, I have seen this film a lot of times, <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> so, yeah, for that to happen because you have your fabled Easter egg yes. memory where you forget plot points and no, can be I was not. Watching the um, same film. There were only a couple of times when I was surprised by the plot of this film, which is pretty good for me. <laughs> um, I don't remember watching this film a lot as a child. But I also kind of don't remember my first time seeing it. <laughs> you know, um, and Scarlet Pimpernel came up a lot when I was in grad school and I was studying superheroes because he is a key figure in what I call the proto heroes, the the earlier um, characters that are clear antecedents to the superheroes that pop up in American popular culture in the 30s and 40s. So through that academic work, I had to engage quite a bit with uh, the Scarlet Pimpernel. So I actually know more through the characters and more through that. Um, but I, th- this is the version of it that I always think of because this is definitely the film that I have seen more so than any of the other adaptations. Yeah, and I agree. I, I have not read any of the novels. I watched that. Is it 2000? There's a 2000 version or is it 2002? Uh, there's a 1999-2000 TV series with Richard E. Grant. Yeah, I watched that and I didn't like yeah. it. No, I just watched the first episode of that last week and I didn't like Which, anytime you really love a particular adaptation of a literary work, there's a tendency to be biased against any other versions just because they're different. And so I realized they were trying to do something very different with it. I just don't think that what they were trying to do differently, they did well. Yeah. And, what they, and what the 82 version does well... They did terribly, so I'm sorry, 1999-2000 version. <laughs> You're going back to Netflix. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it didn't do anything for me. I It didn't have any of the things that I loved about this one, about the 1982. None of it was in the 99-2000. So, yeah, it was, it was totally forgettable. All right, well, uh, wait, what... Wait. I want to... I don't usually chime in for this part, but I have a very clear, specific memory. That involves Joseph and okay. the Scarlet Pimpernel. <laughs> The high school did a production of it. I wasn't in that. You weren't in it. No. But I remember you talking it up to me while we were on the way there. And you said, yeah, it's like how Clark Kent and Superman switch places. That's like the Scarlet Pimpernel and this fancy guy. (laughs) And I think I was like five years old. And we went and we sat through this thing. And I don't remember most of it. I remember a guillotine thing at the beginning. and I remember stick out for five years. And I remember a sword fight at the end. And the guy's sword broke on stage. I remember that, actually. And and they just had to keep going with it. And I was really impressed by that. But it it was Joseph talking it up to me that made me always remember it. Even though I've never actually, like, with a cognizant brain, seen... A production of the Scarlet Pimpernel. I haven't watched this movie yet. It's funny that you remember and, that much. And so much. I don't know the story, but I remember 
you know, that important part of it. And I also remember the fact that it exists. It's funny that you remember that much because I was in high school at the time and I remember nothing about that. <laughs> if I'm remembering right, Todd, we, I think we were probably in ninth grade. So right before we actually went into high school, okay. was, we were in junior high and my brother was playing in the orchestra pit for ah, this production. Okay. And a friend of ours was playing the lead, a guy who lived a few streets down named Dave Wilson was playing the lead. And I remember it, his sword didn't break, it bent. And so he was doing a duel with a bent sword, which seems incredibly dangerous. Probably should have just somehow <laughs> thrown it off stage and got another one tossed out to him and we would all go, just got along with it. Was that Dave Wilson, cross country Dave Wilson? Yeah. Ah. Okay. All right, small world. <laughs> All right, but the version we're talking about today, why don't we have uh, Kirsten give us the more in-depth rundown of this plot? Okay, so when I was re-watching this story in preparation for this podcast, one thing I realized is this is a really, really complicated story. Yes. It's almost two and a half hours long, and, um, and it's a spy story, so it's not just about what's happening, it's what is really happening, what's the cover story for what's happening, who knows the truth, who believes the cover story. I think I figured out that of the four main characters, each of them lies to at least two of the other ones at some point in the story, <laughs> and of course Percy's lying to everyone, so... Um, I'm going to try and get through this as fast as I can, but there's a lot to cover. So Our longer plot summary is that usually we, we say we're going to do it in 10 minutes or less, but they're almost always closer to 20 minutes. Right, Andrew? Well, we're going to shoot for 15. Andrew had species. <laughs> okay, so... Like Joe said, the setting is the French Revolution, specifically the beginning of the Reign of Terror. And lots of people are being executed. They're being um, accused of being enemies of the state, of committing treason. And in particular, French aristocrats are very um, are very at risk because people think that they are plotting to restore the monarchy and overthrow the revolutionary government. To be fair, some of them really are plotting to restore the monarchy and overthrow the government, but some are completely innocent, and is, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to who's going to the guillotine. So, can so, I? I'm going to interject just really, really fast. Yes. So, this is uh, 1792, right? Uh-huh. So, we can imagine that, like, this is uh, after Les Mis, just a few years after Les Mis, and everything no, has gone wrong. No, I think Les Mis is 18... I should know. Les Mis is beginning of the 19th century. It's another revolution. It's, it's not 18-something. Oh. Yeah. I want to say 26 at one point. That's That sounds about right. Okay. It's just... I never finished Sorry. Les Mis. But it is a few Les years... It is, it's a few years after the original French Revolution. I mean, the original. Yes, that's yeah. that's 1789. This is part of the whole French Revolution. There's a lot of cycles of <laughs> I know. French the Revolution. The big, the big famous one, 1789. There's a yeah. huge revolution in France, and then yeah, and that and that establishes this government that's currently the the French Republic that's currently the government. Got it. Okay. Okay. So, in the middle of all this guillotining people right and left, a mysterious spy shows up and begins rescuing French aristocrats and smuggling them to England. It helps to know that Paris is a walled city, and so in order to get out, you have to get out through one of a number of gates. And that's always the bottleneck to get out, um, to get out without being questioned or having your carriage searched or somehow being arrested. That's always, that's always the tricky part. So no one knows anything about this spy other than that he is English. And when he signs his name, or when he signs messages, he signs them with a drawing of a small wildflower called a Scarlet Pimpernel. So they begin calling the spy the Scarlet Pimpernel. In reality, the Scarlet Pimpernel is an English aristocrat named Sir Percy Blakeney, baronet. And as a member of the aristocracy, he's very sympathetic to what the French aristocrats are going through. He's also extremely wealthy, so he can afford to finance these the smuggling operation. But no one who knows him as Sir Percy suspects that he's the Scarlet Pimpernel because he acts like a complete idiot. 
Um, this is the era of the dandy. This is when it was fashionable for aristocratic men to care about clothing and fashion and style and honestly to act a little bit dumb. And Percy plays this up to the hilt. He just embodies the stereotype as much as anyone possibly can in order to hide his secret identity. So um, Percy is leading a double life and no one knows this outside of the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel, which are his band of loyal followers, mostly English aristocrats like himself. One day, Percy is in Paris, just riding in his carriage, when he sees uh, a man on the street who's being beaten up by a couple of thugs. And Percy is very chivalrous, so he gets out and he fights off the thugs, and he takes this man with him to an inn to recuperate. Um, the man's name is is Armand Saint-Just, and he... Nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know I was a French major, right? <laughs> I did not know that. Okay. I, I haven't decided how French I'm going to go. I might go back and forth. I don't feel like saying Marguerite for the entire time, but... So, Armand Saint-Just, <laughs> um, he is a commoner, but he fell in love with the daughter of a French aristocrat named the Marquis de Saint-Cyr. And the movie doesn't tell us exactly what he did. In the book, he wrote her a poem, which is pretty innocuous, <laughs> but the Marquis flipped out and sent a couple of... Scandal. Thugs. <laughs> it was pro- <laughs> it was probably like one of Joe's sonnets from high school where he just inserted her name. Yeah. He wasn't mad. Um, he wasn't mad because he wrote the poem. He was he was mad because he, his daughter's name had just been inserted in fill in girl's name here. <laughs> uh, well, that would take the story in a different direction. <laughs> okay, so um, so the marquee flipped out for whatever reason, uh, and basically flipped out because this was a commoner who was even daring to look at his daughter, and he sends the two thugs to teach him a lesson. So Armand and Percy are um, at the inn, and Armand sends for his sister, Marguerite, who also lives in Paris, to let her know what's going on and so that she can come take him home. So Marguerite shows up, and when Percy sees her, it's basically love at first sight. She's just incredibly beautiful, and he's smitten, but Marguerite is paying more attention to her brother, um, and when she hears what has happened to Armand, she's furious, and she swears vengeance on the Marquis de Saint-Cyr in front of Armand and in front of Percy, um, which will become a plot point. So uh, Marguerite and Armand are getting ready to leave. She's going to take him home. And Percy says, well, wait, will I ever see you again? And she says, well, I'm throwing a small party next week. You can come to my party. So he says, fine. So um, Percy shows up at her party. And at this point, it's helpful to know that Marguerite Saint-Just is a celebrated actress on the Parisian stage. And she's beautiful and clever and intelligent. And she's at the center of social life in revolutionary Paris. Um, she's played by Jane Seymour. And she's played by, that's right. And she's played by Dr. Quinn. Can I make a, Um, I'm going to make a true confession right here. I had a huge crush on her for a very long time. Um, I feel like as confessions go, that's a pretty minor one. That's, that's pretty reasonable. So, uh, so Percy shows up at her party. Unfortunately for him, she's actually in a relationship with someone else right now. Um, with she- Magneto. <laughs> <laughs> no, with Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs> she is in a relationship with Ian McKellen, <laughs> playing a character named Paul Chauvelin, who is, um, he's an agent of the revolutionary government. Specifically, he's the chief agent of the Committee of National Security. And so he's in charge of writing up arrest warrants and arresting people, including aristocrats, and sending them to the guillotine. And he would really like to know who the Scarlet Pimpernel is. That would make his life a lot easier if he could find this person. Um, He doesn't, of course, know that it's this idiot aristocrat who showed up to Marguerite's party. 
So, um, despite the fact that Marguerite is dating someone else, Percy's like, well, I can still make a move. And, uh, and so he starts, he starts courting her. I don't know. I guess you're not really dating in 1790, but he starts wooing her, courting her. (laughs) And, uh, and he doesn't tell her his big secret, but he does start to let his foppish mask kind of slip a little bit. He starts to be more genuine around her and she even calls him on it. Like, why are you, you know, why do you act like an idiot in public, but different around me? And he basically says, well, you have to believe that I love you and one day you'll get to know me better. So, um, so Percy and Marguerite, they date and eventually he proposes and they get married and they're so very happy for a few hours. Um, but later that day, actually at their Which in the like, film is like 30 seconds. Right, right. Yeah, I don't even know. Maybe it's just minutes. <laughs> so um, Percy learns that Marguerite has denounced the Marquis de Saint-Cyr, so she's publicly accused him of treason. And that very morning, he and his wife and his children have all been executed. And he's horrified. He knows that she, he knows he's not a good, that the Marquis was not a good guy. Um, he knows that Marguerite obviously had a grudge against him, but she did not think that she had it in her to be this bloodthirsty. And, and one of his friends who's, who's part of the league says, well, you need to talk to her. Like, surely, you know, there must be some sort of explanation for this. This doesn't sound like her. And he basically says, look, if she is capable of this, and if I even try to talk to her about it, and if she suspects why I'm trying to talk to her about it, that could put me, my men, all the aristocrats we're trying to rescue, and especially the Dauphin, the heir to the throne, in jeopardy, and I just can't risk that. And so he basically decides he is never going to let her know that he knows about this, and he's just going to be kind of closed off from her, and and yeah, she's not going to know. Does that sound like? So, does that seem like a believable plot point to you? I mean, so um, much of the plot hinges on this, and I had yeah. a really hard time swallowing it this time around. It's it's classic, though, for if everyone would just have one conversation, so many plots will be resolved well, <laughs> without I, reaching the heights. I mean, I they, understand his need to. to not be like, hey, guess what? I'm the Scarlet Pimpernel, and I'm yeah. wondering. But, like, he is the Scarlet Pimpernel. He's the smartest the guy in the same time, it is his wife. So do you really understand the need for him to not <laughs> let her know? Well, I think it also helps that that the information is very credible. It, you know, it comes from, I, I didn't mention who it comes from, but it comes from someone who's actually an eyewitness to the warrant, who, someone who has no, you know, has no reason to be biased himself, someone who is actually reporting the information as honestly as he can. And so, I mean, I, I, I do think you probably have to have something of a suspension of disbelief, but I think looking at stories that do rely on people not talking to each other, I think there are far worse stories and far yeah, worse stories. Yeah, they at least one. offered an explanation for why this conversation doesn't happen. Right. Whereas so right. many other stories, you're just pulling your head, out, your hair out. Like, just, just go talk. Yeah, yeah there are, yeah, there um, are a understand. few things in this film that, that watching it this time around, I was like, Wah. and I'm usually not super <laughs> critical of films, but that's, it seemed like, uh, like one of the weaker points of the film to me. But continue. You're doing a fine job. It, it's certainly... Thank you. Um, it's certainly a point on which the rest of the film hinges. His decision right there. And so yeah. you either have to buy into it or you're like, oh, come on, just talk to her. Yeah. Okay. So now we have to backtrack a little bit and tell the story from Marguerite's perspective. Um, at the party, Marguerite happened to find a letter that was dropped by another guest that was from the Marquis de Saint-Cyr that has information about where the Dauphin was being held in prison. And this is an incredibly incriminating piece of information because the only reason the Marquis could possibly want to know this is if he's trying to rescue the Dauphin and restore the monarchy. And that is treason. So honestly, just with this letter, she could have him arrested and she could have him executed, but she doesn't. She's actually very torn. I think she feels like she's a little bit over her head. She doesn't know what to do with it. So she hangs on to the letter, doesn't really do anything with it. 
a little while later, when she's kind of seen both Chauvelin and Percy, um, Chauvelin's waiting for her in her dressing room at one point uh, after a show. And she um, and Chauvelin's kind of going through her stuff, and he finds the letter and says, and kind of confronts her and says, Marguerite, what is this? What have you got yourself involved in? And she says, oh, no, no, I, I came across this by accident. You know, I'm not involved in this. And so then he says, well, why didn't you come to me? Why didn't you, you know, formally denounce the Marquis? And she says, well, I just, you know, he could go, he could go to the guillotine for this. That just seemed really drastic. I didn't I didn't know what to do. And he basically pulls the sort of parental guilt trip, like, you know what the right thing to do is, <laughs> but, you know, I'll wait for when you're ready. And she says, okay. So, um, later on, she gets engaged to Percy, and Chauvelin's really upset about that, especially because Chauvelin's never seen Percy be anything other than an idiotic fop. And so, as far as he can tell, Marguerite is marrying him for his money and his title, and he did not think she was nearly that shallow. So, he's really upset. So, he goes to see her, and he says, well, um, I want to know what you're doing about the letter. And she says, nothing. I've decided to do nothing. And he says, if you're not going to do your duty, I'll do it for you. So, he goes back, and he fills out the arrest warrant, and he puts her name down as the informant. And um, and has the marquee arrested. So that's why her name shows up on the official paperwork. But she is almost completely innocent. Like, she really had nothing to do with it. This is Chauvelin taking revenge. So um, after the wedding, Percy starts being very cold to her. And Marguerite has no idea what's happened. All she knows is that her husband apparently doesn't love her anymore. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> Armand, back at, the ranch, back at the ranch, Armand, Marguerite's brother, um, he had been working as an assistant to Chauvelin, so in that in that same office for that same committee. But he's become disillusioned with the revolution because Chauvelin imprisoned one of Armand's friends, and Chauvelin lied to Armand and manipulated him to, to, to in order to do it. And Armand's just very upset. Um, luckily, Armand confides this to Percy that he wants to try to rescue his friend, and Percy decides to uh, let Armand in on his secret. And Percy says, "I'll rescue." your friend and you can stay out of it and then you can stay working for Chauvelin and basically be a mole for the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel. So this all happened before they got married. Um, however, Chauvelin has interviewed... <laughs> before, Mar- before Marguerite and Percy got married, not not Percy right, and uh, Armand. Because right. that would have <laughs> been... Happen. That, would that be would also be a different story. story. Uh, that's more fan fiction. Um, so, uh, meanwhile, um, or a little bit later, Chauvelin intercepts a letter to Armand from the Scarlet Pimpernel I have to say, there are a lot of intercepted letters in this story. <laughs> we should write them down, really. Right. Uh, I don't know if there's ever a letter that actually gets to its intended recipient without being read by someone else along the way. <laughs> anyway, so Chauvelin intercepts a letter to Armand from the Scarlet Pimpernel. Now he knows that Armand's working for the Scarlet Pimpernel, um, and he could have him arrested if he wanted to. But instead, he decides to use that information to blackmail Marguerite. So he goes back to London, and he says, look, we know the Scarlet Pimpernel is English. He's probably an aristocrat. You are the center of social life in London. You are going to be my eyes and ears, and you're going to help me catch him. And Marguerite is very upset and torn. Marguerite is torn throughout this entire story. <laughs> and, uh, but she finally agrees. So they all go to a ball, and on, Cho- and on Chauvelin's orders, Marguerite tricks one of the other guests in order to read a note <laughs> that is from the Scarlet Pimpernel, which says that he wants to meet with his men in the library at midnight. So she passes that information on to Chauvelin, who says, great, I'll be in the library at midnight, I'll catch the Scarlet Pimpernel, I'll get this fantastic promotion. So he's really happy. Um, Marguerite feels terrible, so she decides to go to the library at a quarter to midnight to warn the Scarlet Pimpernel that Chauvelin's coming. So she goes there, and she's just waiting, and she hears someone, she hears like a rustle, and she says, the Scarlet Pimpernel, and it's Percy behind a curtain, and he tells her not to turn around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this scene has some issues also, but continue. (laughs) I love it too, but it's, uh, 
she shows a lot of self restraint. I mean, if only she had gone in to get uh, to get uh, Eurydice and not Orpheus, that whole story would have been different. Because she will follow to the letter what she's asking. Because he gets awfully yeah. close to her. Like walk up, he's not behind a curtain this whole scene. He walks right out and he puts his hand on her shoulder okay, and she holds his hand. That actually echoes an earlier scene when he's talking to her before the ball. I had not no. Wait. Yeah, so he goes to talk to her. This is a diversion, but he goes to talk to her before the ball because he's trying to figure out why Chauvelin went to see her. And he comes in to see her, and he puts his hand on her shoulder and just says, "Oh, you're looking beautiful." And so, and it's the exact same. Oh, and he's, she's in the mirror. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the exact yes, same yes, thing yes. that he does. You kind of can't tell because yeah, one of them's I gotcha. in the mirror. But um, but yeah, that was something I noticed the first time through. And she and she like grabs his hand and actually like feels his signet ring, but it's his fake signet ring, not his real one. Anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that was kind of a nice echo. Okay, so. He yes. tells her, don't turn around, and basically they have this entire conversation with her standing in front of the fire and him standing behind her and whispering so that she doesn't recognize his voice. And Mark It's not Mark- like the Christian Bale. <laughs> Batman voice. It's not like that. <laughs> no, there's no Batman voice. <laughs> I was thinking the Flash, if he could vibrate his vocal cords really fast. But no, there's none of that. He just yeah. says, don't turn around, yeah. and then she doesn't. And then they have this long conversation, and she just doesn't... Okay, so Whatever. Marguerite says, um, Chauvelin knows you're going to be here at midnight, but I came to warn you because I can't live with your life on my hands. And Percy says, what do you care? You are already responsible for the deaths of the Marquis de Saint-Cyr and his family. And Marguerite says, that's not true. Chauvelin deceived me, and he put my name down on the arrest warrant because I dumped him for someone else. For you! But she doesn't know that. Um, <laughs> and this is the most honest conversation they've had since they got married. But unfortunately, Marguerite doesn't know she's talking to Percy. So it's kind of, you know, we're not, we're not quite that full, like, communication there. But anyway. But he knows. But he so, knows, yes. So. so Percy hears this, and he feels terrible at having misjudged her. He enjoys her honesty, but he doesn't share any of his own at this moment. <laughs> and it doesn't it seem like that would have been the perfect time for him to go, oh my gosh, I have something to tell you too. Oh, okay, but, except that... I feel like it's important that she figure it out herself because that kind of puts her on an even footing with him. Like yeah. if the like if the superhero has to tell someone, that kind of is like like one of the greatest on investigative footing. reporters. Yeah, on the planet. yeah. <laughs> exactly. For example, <laughs> who's been trying to crack the story for decades. <laughs> Okay, so Percy hears this. He feels terrible at having misjudged her, um, and so he says, "If this is true, you're very brave for coming here." And Marguerite says, "You know." Maybe, but this is going to cost my brother's life, so I've, you know, I've just made my choice there. And Percy says, I will take care of your brother as long as I'm alive. Don't worry about it. It's almost midnight. So Percy tells Marguerite to leave her and get out. And he lies down on a couch and pretends to be asleep. (laughs) So then Chauvelin comes in and he sees Percy asleep. And as far as we know, he doesn't connect Percy with Scarlet Pimpernel. He just thinks it's Percy. So Percy has to leave for France that night to plan his next rescue, and he doesn't get a chance to see Marguerite before he goes. Um, So Marguerite comes home from the ball, and Percy's not there, and she asks one of her servants, where's Sir Percy? Kate, I have to... You missed one thing. Uh, So at the end of the ball, uh, Chauvelin sees Marguerite, and he says, look, I found your earring. But did you notice? She's wearing two earrings oh, during that, that conversation. That ruins the entire story then. Sorry, <laughs> we're done. <laughs> no, I hadn't noticed. I'll have to look for that next time. Yep, well, next time you watch it. She has two two big dangly earrings, and he's holding her third big dangly earring in front of her, saying, ah, I caught you. It's an eyebrow ring. <laughs> Nose ring. Okay, so um, if, if this summary takes half an hour, it's your guys' fault. Um, 
<laughs> I know. So, that's all right. Uh, Margaret comes home from the ball, asks the servant where Percy is, and the servant says, uh, Sir Percy left you a letter in the study. He had to leave. And Marguerite, Marguerite goes into the study and reads the letter, and it says that Percy's left on a business trip. And she's like, who goes on a business trip in the middle of the night? This is just weird. Was this letter not intercepted? Um, this letter was not intercepted, but it's a no. lie. So I don't know if it counts. <laughs> Um, you're right. That's the one letter that's not intercepted. <laughs> Percy can leave a letter for someone in his own house without having it be intercepted. Probably. Um, so she reads the letter and she thinks, well, that's weird. But then she notices, apparently for the first time, um, a portrait of one of Percy's ancestors. And he's wearing a signet ring that has a small flower on it that is the Scarlet Pimpernel. And they're everywhere. And then, yeah, and then she notices like the Blakeney family crest is like covered in Scarlet Pimpernels that she also... <laughs> This is my favorite. It's this like is Rapunzel my favorite scene of the film. at the end. Which is like, oh, the royal crest is everywhere. <laughs> I've been painting it without realizing. <laughs> so, yep, um, yep, yep. so she realizes the truth. She's horrified that he may be walking into a trap set by Chauvelin. So she decides she has to go to France to warn him. So Percy's in France, and they're planning to rescue the Dauphin. And Armand wants to go back to Paris um, because he has a girlfriend there, and he wants to make sure she's safe. And Percy says, "It's too dangerous for you to go back to Paris. Don't go back to Paris. I'll take care of your girlfriend." Uh, the next day, they try to rescue the Dauphin, and the rescue goes off pretty well, except that Armand doesn't show up for his part of the plan. And so Percy's like, he must have been captured, he must be in trouble, I need to go back to Paris to rescue him. So he goes back to Paris, and he ends up walking into a trap laid by Chauvelin, and Percy is captured and thrown into jail. So by the time Margaret gets to Paris, Percy's in jail, and she goes to Chauvelin and demands to see her husband. So um, he takes her down to to the jail cell, and Percy's staring out the window when they get there, but then he turns, and he sees her, and he's so happy to see her, and now the truth, like, each of them knows the truth about each other, and they're so happy, and they're in love, and everything is great, except for the part where Percy's in prison, and he's going to be executed. <laughs> so uh, Marguerite says, you have to tell them where the Dauphin is, you know, I can't live without you, and Percy's like, I can't, this is the most important thing to me right now. So Marguerite says, well, then we have to find a way to get you out of here, and Percy he says, actually, maybe with your help, maybe we can. Cut scene, so we don't know what he says. Uh, so the next day, Percy tells Chauvelin, I'll tell you where the Dauphin is, but I have to lead you to him myself because my men will only exchange him for me. So um, Chauvelin and Percy and Marguerite and Armand, as hostages, kind of go um, to a fortress on the coast of France along with a bunch of Chauvelin soldiers. And the soldiers go ahead to kind of scope things out, um, and then Chauvelin follows them, but when he gets to the fortress, he finds out that it's pretty much empty and the Dauphin is gone and Percy lied to him. And Chauvelin is tired of being crossed and double-crossed by Percy, so he tells the soldiers go out to the courtyard and shoot the spy. Which they do. That's the end. No, that's not the end. But we think he's dead. Um, but it turns out it's a trick and he comes back. And what happened is that Percy's men bound and gagged the soldiers as they came in and took their uniforms, and so actually all the soldiers who are there in the fortress are Percy's men. Um, Percy and Chauvelin have a sword fight for some reason, which Percy wins handily, but instead of killing Chauvelin, he decides it would be more fair to let him go back to Paris to be put on trial by his own government for botching this business of catching the Scarlet Pimpernel. So Chauvelin goes back to Paris, he's sent back to Paris, um, and the Dauphin, it turned out, uh, escaped to Austria to be with his mother's family to be safe, and Marguerite and Percy sail back to England on Percy's yacht and are happy and in love. The end. Very well done. That was impressive. Boom. Thank you. Nice job. I, I'm sure that that was all without notes. <laughs> or, or drafts. And I definitely haven't practiced it or timed it. <laughs> what, what, what did you time like it jo- Like Joseph uh, did. 16 uh, minutes. So we'll see what it was in real life. With Joseph and Todd interrupting. Oh, I mean, 
twenty six. Yeah, that's But that's your podcast. It's all good. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> okay, well, see you guys good later. Good talking to you. Hope you feel better. Yeah, I feel great. Uh, so, um, how do we want to tackle this? We've got some talking points here. We've got um, our usual questions of what are your favorite moments, your let's, favorite um, uh, Percy Blakeney moments. significance, because I think that's kind of unusual for what you've been talking about, that this one actually, like like Joe said, um, so this is, this the book, it was originally a play. Uh, it was a play in 1903, and the book was in 1905. Right, 1905, right. And, and it's generally accepted as the first secret ish. identity, first-ish <laughs> secret identity. It's in, very murky in literature. <laughs> when you yeah. talk about this. Um because there's some uh, some earlier dime novels that are flirting with okay. secret identity. Uh, there's Nick of the Woods, who is really the uh, aptly named Nathan Slaughter, <laughs> who uh, he becomes quite the Indian hunter oh, <laughs> for a while there. Nice. Uh, but he's called Nick of the Woods when he's in his. I wonder why Indian that hunting. one hasn't lasted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he, well, he's a friend of Indians, and but his wife was. His his family was killed by bad Indians, but he's friends with the good, good Indians. Indians. But okay. then he hunts all the bad Indians, and it is a massacre at times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Spring Hill wow. Jack, depending on the version of Spring Hill Jack, can okay. be can fall into it. And some even argue uh, that Robin Hood is oh, a secret yeah, identity. I can see that. But uh, that's a really yeah. murky one to try and trace when what version of Robin Hood. I feel like this about. is definitely the first uh, rich idiot with no day job secret identity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And it is one yeah. that uh, gets gets used a lot <laughs> right. from there on out. Right. Hey, uh, I have a question. This is actually like a really honest, uh, like a real live honest question. Um, is it possible that the secret identity started not with heroes, but with villains? Or are we talking about are we talking about like the first secret secret identities of heroes? Do you mean like or, a villain who takes another name or something? No, I just mean like uh, like in a story where somebody's trying to find out. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking like early detective fiction. If you're trying to find somebody and it turns out that so and so is is a murderer, but we think that mm-hmm. they're just a regular person. Is that the same as saying like well, we think that he is a is a well, total it depends on dork, if they're, idiot, but I, he's actually yes, a superhero? Say, Does that make sense? Depend on not just them having a secret, but you know this alternate form of identity where at night they go out and you know they wear a mask to meet with their minions and, and they give them you know and it's the their, minions only know them as this right. you know whatever identity they've created. Right. And it's just, it's also okay. a sustained identity. It's mm-hmm. not just you're doing this for a little while, uh-huh. and it's something that they've chosen. So it's not like the police have nicknamed you the whatever killer or something. It's like it's his own name that he's chosen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's yeah, okay. a book that I'm holding cool. in my hand by a guy named Peter Coogan, Doctor Peter Coogan. He was at Michigan State just before I was. We were like ships passing. Oh. We just missed. But it's a superhero, oh. the secret origin of the genre, and he gets into a lot of uh, the discussion about. What is the first of all these? And they're all murky. <laughs> when you're trying to say the first, yeah, um, it's generally said that like Superman represents the first superhero, but there are all these antecedents mm-hmm. that have parts of the superhero genre to them. And Scarlet Pimpernel is and one when of the, super- the main ones. And when is Superman? 1938. Okay, and Zorro is like 1919. Okay, and the Phantom in the comic strips is 1920 something. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it, was, it predates Superman, but it doesn't quite have all of the elements that right. we associate with Superman, like. Now, if they came after Superman, we'd say they fit better the superhero genre than anything else. But there right. wasn't really a superhero genre quite in existence yet. One of the things I think is interesting about the Scarlet Pimpernel is that he doesn't have an origin story. 
Yeah. Uh, which is which is something that you like you were talking about kind of proto superheroes. Um that seems that's something we take for granted with with the modern superheroes, but we have no like the first time we meet Percy, he's already this he's doing this thing, yeah. And we never find out why. One of the one of the musicals actually switches around some events and kind of gives him an origin story, but um but yeah, like I mean, it has to you know, it has to have been at or after the French Revolution because that's the you know that's the situation that he's trying to remedy. But you know, we yeah. don't really know what what. And actually, along those lines, um, one of the big differences between the film adaptations and the book is that the book is primarily from Marguerite's perspective, um, mostly from her perspective, occasionally from some other POV characters, virtually never from Percy's perspective, to the point that we don't know he's the Scarlet Pimpernel until she figures it out about halfway through the book. And so Percy's a very mysterious huh. character in that. Like, we really, I think in the books in general, we never really get in his head. Um, Are all of the books from her perspective? No, she. I th- as far as I know, she's only in the first one, and then she just goes home to be a nice little wife for, for the next 13 books. <laughs> I have not read the additional books. I've only read parts of the first I've one. I've read so. about, I've read the first one, and I've read maybe a half dozen of the rest of them. Orem Public Library had a large number of them for some reason, so I went through them. But no, she's not really involved. And it's um, and, and Percy's supposed to be a master of disguise, but in the books he's also super tall and very broad-shouldered, so it's hard for him to disguise stuff. So it's always this big trick at the end, like, who was Percy the whole time and, and you didn't realize it, dear reader. So. Yeah. And I was going to say, as- I always imagine this is in my total, like... Uh- Oh, there's a there's a on on the incomparable, which is another podcast where they talk about movies and stuff. Uh, they talk about headcanon, which is just the story oh, that you uh-huh. make up in your head to explain things. Not not the uh, canon. You in have my headcanon, head that's something else. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no headcanon. So in my, like in my headcanon, uh, his family is like a, there's like a long line of Scarlet Pimpernels in his family, and that's why the guy in the picture has the ring. Uh, but I realize that if you think about that too much, then it, it sort of breaks down. So I'm that not, is I, I, the I, origin of the Phantom, the earlier comics to reference, which is this is nice that you mentioned this because our producer Andrew came up with a Google search. It was 1936, the first appearance of the Phantom in nice. newspaper comic strips. I feel like I feel like Baroness Orsi or Orsi or Orsi. I again, I'd always heard of it as Orsi before I was doing research for this, and I came right. across that quote. Okay, the Baroness. Now that sounds like uh, uh, a G.I. Joe villain. No, I'm, I was going to say. No, no, that sounds like Santa music. Um, uh, same thing. Same I, thing. I think in one of the I think in one of the sequels she does have either an ancestor or a descendant of Sir Percy, or maybe both. Like maybe someone's in the War of the Roses or something. Mm. Anyway, I'd have, I haven't read that one. I'd have to look that up. Wait, someone who is no, no, both no, his sorry. ancestor I, and I, his she descendant? She either has a story about one of his ancestors <laughs> or one of his descendants. Possibly both. <laughs> who is but being not, a heroic dual identity. I'm sorry, that just made no more <laughs> yeah. sense. Sorry. That made no more sense the second time than it did the first Possibly two different stories. not a time-traveling Scarlet Pimpernel. Though that is another one. We should keep that one <laughs> in you know, for our fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> So much great fan fiction coming out of this podcast. I love it. So what are some other proto-superhero aspects of of the Scarlet Pimpernel? Um, We have... It's missing the costume, right? Yes, yes. But it has the dual identity, obviously. Uh, He has a mission. Mm -hmm. um, And and those are two of the main generic elements that we associate with um, the superhero. The mission is a little different than what we typically associate with the superhero in that this is protecting the aristocracy from the rabble of the common man. (laughs) Whereas most superheroes are protecting the common man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, he does 
protect our mouth, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have to say, this is an... You know, because I because I saw this film well before I ever read the book, and the book is um, very disappointing by by comparison. I think the film's plot is a lot tighter, but the but the film gives a nod to it early on. He's um he's with a family in France, and their daughter actually does some very nice sort of exposition. She does a lot of she carries a lot of exposition, but um but she does point out like, look, we kind of brought this on ourselves. We you know we had all this arrogance and wow. excess, and and so she does kind of give an eye towards. Um, towards you know the fact that this is not as black and white as it may seem even though even as we go to carry on this story that's really just about saving aristocrats also i I looked this up in real life um the number of aristocrats who were killed during the reign of terror was vastly outnumbered by the number of clergy killed and then those two together were dwarfed by the number of commoners killed so aristocrats were killed at a disproportionate rate but they were already such a small part of the population that it actually wasn't all aristocrats Whereas all the time. The film makes it look like it's yeah. just morning till night aristocrats <laughs> getting thrown under the guillotine. Maybe it's just that yeah. one guillotine. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they only had one. <laughs> I'm interested in this point that you brought up, Joseph, that he doesn't have a uh-huh. costume. Um, he does have a symbol but... of the Pimpernel. He, he has a symbol of the Pimpernel. And he is way into right, but disguise. but it's not the same disguise over and over. And not, right, it's not the same disguise. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm just saying uh, that if, if we're talking about, like, proto-heroes mm-hmm. and proto-superheroes, um, and he is very much into right. appearance. I mean, we talk. he talks constantly about uh, tailoring and the cravat and... Um, Right. So, like, no, he doesn't don a cape but and you wear. C- you, you could know, argue that the goblets. the kind of the performance part is actually when he's being the fop, mm-hmm. um, kind of like the Bruce Wayne yeah. when he's pretending to be the playboy that doesn't, you know, that just is interested in partying. But you know, he's really got Batman going on in the back of his head. Mm-hmm. Um, he's pretending to, be, you know, Blake Me is pretending to be this this. <laughs> I mean, fop is just the perfect word for it, I guess. Uh, and. And you may, you could also, you know, if you like squint your eyes the right way, you could make an argument um, that he's a shapeshifter, right? I mean, that's yeah. His, yeah, well, yeah he's got and superpowers, a skill set, right? The, the this very is a special a, set of skills, <laughs> right? But his very special, his very special set of skills, and, and that's the thing that I loved about this film that did not show up mm-hmm. in the 1999 one was like his disguises in the in the newer one were appalling yeah. and like laughable like like oh i'm going to wear a different <laughs> colored hat or something it's like so dumb uh but but his disguises uh, even like today when i was watching it i thought mm-hmm. those are the best mm-hmm. they're so good um almost to the point where it seems like he's uh i mean it's 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 like a mm-hmm. you know like a proto superpower i mean it's they're like very very convincing very cool disguises and dresses oh, as yeah. a woman. No, and I, so and I love awesome. it, especially when he's this like hideous old hag, and he uh, and and the and the guard is checking his papers, and he goes, "Hey, thinks I'm an aristocrat," and he like makes all the you know makes all the guards men's laugh at him. Um, yeah, it's really great, you know, double triple entendre kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Coogan, he it, when talking about the superhero genre, and he he talks about like Superman and Batman really established the generic elements of what we we call the superhero genre. Those were the first two real superheroes. Um, not a bad one-two punch for the superhero genre to come out with Superman and Batman. No. Uh, and he, he talks in the book about the antecedents of Superman. He calls them the sci-fi heroes um, from pulp magazines. 
and uh, you, you know, a little more out there with the power bases. And he's, <laughs> I like, I'm just going to read the, the quote. There's no good single term for another thread running through the antediluvian age. That's what he calls the pre-Superman and Batman. Yes, the antediluvian go back, to, you know, <laughs> be it through oral traditions or dime novels and into the pulp magazines. Uh, all of these kind of crime-fighting pseudo superheroes, proto superheroes. Um, but he calls them the dual identity crime-fighting Avenger vigilantes. <laughs> he doesn't roll off the tongue, <laughs> but this is kind of the best best way that we can describe these because there were, uh, and this is where Scarlet Pimpernel fits the you know dual identity crime-fighting Avenger vigilantes because they're not part of um, the establishment which some of these characters were like so even if they there were some dual identities but they were like com- obviously working complicitly with the um the status quo the organization you know the and, and scarlet Brunel's fighting against that um you know he's not a part of it so he's he falls under the vigilante he's avenging wrongs he's got the dual identity and he's viewing this as a crime that he's trying to correct mm-hmm. and stop so um scarlet Brunel zorro is another one that that fit into that into that that kind of a mold versus some of the ones that are what he called the sci-fi ones a little more um where you start to see more powers happening even before superman um but this is uh, the threat of the kind of the powerless ones that lead into batman so here's something i've wondered because in the book and presumably in the play it's you know it's a secret to the audience that perceives the scarlet pimpernel until about halfway through the story um for modern readers, I have to feel like it would be painfully obvious from the very first page that it would that it has to be Percy because it has to be someone that she knows. Um, it would be really disappointing if it turned out that Scarlet Pimpernel was like just some guy that you didn't know, <laughs> and your husband's still an idiot. Sorry. Every once in a while, a mystery show will do that, and the audiences always get furious. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like a mystery show. Like the structure is that you know is that yeah. tight. So it has to be someone that she knows, and it has to be someone who's the least likely suspect. So her husband, who she thinks is an idiot. Um, so for modern readers, I think this is just like blindingly obvious. Um, although I I knew coming into the story because I'd seen the I'd seen the movie before, but I wonder. For contemporary readers, do you think it was actually a big shock? Like, if this well, this is one of the first times they've seen this narrative device, would they have been bowled over by it? You know, or was this was this something they would have expected? Do you think? I don't know because I'm torn by two things. Um, one is I think we're constantly, as modern audiences, we treat previous audiences as quaint, like mm-hmm. all their storytelling tropes and, and their reactions as, as kind of quaint and simplistic, <laughs> right. which is false. But at the same time, also there's the context that we are so inundated and familiar with the tropes. And, um, you know, by the time a modern reader would have been today would look at, um, Scarlet Pimpernel, they'd probably have seen hundreds of these kinds of stories, be it through superhero genre or through detective genre, or, you know, read them, seen them on TV, seen them in movies, which is wildly different than what the experience of a reader or a, a playgoer, yeah. you know, at the turn of the century would have been. So I don't, I, I don't know. I'm, tor- <laughs> I'm, tor- I'm torn by both of those. Yeah. Um, I, I would guess it would be a mixed bag, right? Sure. Yeah, so there probably would have been sophisticated readers who you know, had been engaging a lot with this, but at the same time, you know, popular culture was not as pervasive mm-hmm. in the everyday life of, of the people the way it is today. They don't yeah. have tvtropes.com <laughs> to go and look at and see this. So I don't, I, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I'd love to try and find out like some of the early reviews mm-hmm. um, of the play and see if there's any commentary that, sure. that's in there, but I have not done that. The, the play aspect would also have made the disguise part really fun because 
plays are all about costumes and disguises right. anyway. And, so, and I guess it would depend on the right. quality of the actor. Sure. Uh, how obvious is it, you know, sure. from scene one that, oh, <laughs> that's the same actor I just saw yes. on, on stage. Whereas for the right. book, it's, you know, it's, um, which I haven't, I haven't read all of that novel. I've only read snippets of it. So I don't know how well it's being disguised throughout the novel. Oh man, that's really interesting to think about. I don't, the, the, I mean, it's hard now because yeah. we all, you know, we know Blakeney's The Scarlet Pimpernel. We right? don't, I don't think we ever see The Scarlet Pimpernel do anything until, um, until Marguerite finds out. Like we, like we see him in disguise later in the book, but, um, so I don't know that we really have an opportunity to realize that it's Sir Percy or not. I think in the other, in the later books, I think we do, but not in that one necessarily. So can we talk about why I love super? Secret Identity Stories? Yes, please. Okay. So this is kind of how this conversation got started between uh, me and Todd on Facebook because we were talking about X-Men and how Todd really likes the X-Men because they don't have a secret identity. So I've realized this is there's this particular um, kind of narrative device that I love and can never get enough of, and it has to be set up by a secret identity. So you start off and you have this person who has a true, proper, full, secret identity, and um, he, generally he, sadly, uh, is um, is genuinely trying to keep these two these two personas separate. But inevitably, something happens where where the one the two worlds end up mixing or or, or bleeding into each other. Um, sometimes it's because he decides that he has to tell someone his secret. Uh, which is always a great moment. I always love that when that happens. But that's kind of his choice. Um, sometimes it's a moment where he's not really doing a great job. He, he's accidentally letting stuff slip from, from one world to the other. So information he shouldn't have or superpowers he shouldn't have if it's a powered superhero. So, you know, you should be able to fly or something. Um, I, I remember the TV show Lois and Clark did this almost every single episode. Um, there was one episode when Lois and Clark are, are spying on some military base and they, and they can't get very close to it. So they're kind of spying on it. And Lois is using binoculars and Clark is surreptitiously using a supervision. And at one point she goes to hand him the binoculars and he says, Oh, I don't need them. And she says, what? And he says, I mean, I can't use them with my glasses very well. <laughs> and so like those little <laughs> moments, which happened almost every time on that TV show that Lois was just not paying attention to, but that's okay. Okay. That- brilliant investigative reporter. <laughs> That's her character arc is to learn to pay attention to Clark. Um, So there's that kind of moment. But then you have, then there's the sort of the third type, which is where your, your hero is in one persona and this situation comes up where he, that can only be dealt with by the other persona, but he can't switch to do it for some reason. Like he has to deal with it as the, as the wrong persona and kind of, and kind of make all that work. Um, And there's a particular moment in the dark Knight when one of Bruce Wayne's accountants has figured out that he's Bruce Wayne and is blackmailing him. And then the Joker for his own purposes ends up kind of blackmailing the city of Gotham to kill this accountant. And so Bruce Wayne has to deal with it, but he can't do it as Batman because it's daylight and it's downtown Gotham and it's just not going to work. So instead of suiting up and getting in the Batmobile, he gets into one of his sports cars and he drives down to downtown Gotham. And, um, and when he gets there, he sees someone is about to take a shot at this accountant who's, who's outside. And so he ends up causing a car accident that somehow prevents that person from taking the shot. Um, but he does it as like, you know, playboy Bruce Wayne. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just crashed my sports car. So he gets out and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, you know, are you okay? And, uh, 
And so he knows what he's really done. No one else around him knows what he's really done, but the accountant sees him and immediately figures out what's happened. And they have, they share this look, which is like, okay, everyone else thinks Bruce Wayne crashed his sports car. You and I know that Batman just saved me. And you and I know this, and we know that the other person knows this, and we know that we're the only (laughs) ones who know this. And I just love, love moments like that, um, which are only really popular in secret or only really possible in secret identity stories. Um, and I think the reason that I love them is because they play into the idea of social masks that, you know, if you are older than a toddler, you are wearing a social mask, you are, you know, kind of presenting the space to society. And, and occasionally you'll see situations like, or someone's been hiding a really big personal secret or something and it comes out and the neighbors say, oh, he always seems so nice or something, you know, you see that kind of situation, but with, um, with superheroes who have secret identities, obviously that social mask is kind of dialed up to 11. Like it's, it's a much, much bigger thing. And so when you have that social mask and then it somehow slips for a moment, either because you choose to let it slip or because it has to slip and you don't, you know, you can't, you can't help it. You can't control that moment. Um, I find that very powerful. The idea of just for a moment making connection and, and really getting to see someone for who they are. So that's why I love superhero stories, (laughs) including the Scarlet Pimpernel. (laughs) So I have a I have a thought about that. Um, yesterday, two days ago, we were we had a conference here at school, and um, a bunch of students were giving a papers about uh, about a Latin American graphic novel called City of Clowns, and one of the tropes in the in the book is um, clowns mm-hmm. and masks. And so they were talking about like. Uh, your mask and your real identity, right? So this is who this is my mask. This is my masked identity, and then this is my real identity. Um, and I asked uh, one of the students if he thought that there is a real identity, or mm-hmm. right? Or is it all just? I mean, there, there's another argument to be made, right? There is another argument to be made that says that we are mm-hmm. all always performing, and then and that uh, it can be really hard to know like who somebody really is, and. Um, and so, anyway, I just, I, I, I mean, I love secret identity stories as, as well. I'm not in any way opposed to uh, secret identity stories, um, but I wonder if they sometimes uh, mask, for <laughs> lack of a better word, um, this idea that, that even... And this is something that I really liked in, Scar- in Scarlet Pimpernel watching it this time, is that there there are more than two faces to the Scarlet Pimpernel. There's actually mm-hmm. three least, that yeah. we see, right? There's <laughs> at least, yeah. So there's there's the there's the foppish uh, that guy, and then there's the the sort of serious uh, superhero guy that's saving all the people, and then there's mm-hmm. this kind of guy in the middle when he when he's talking with Marguerite especially, and he'll just sort of slightly change his tone of voice, but not completely give up the accent like this this effect, mm-hmm. affected accent. Um, and so I think just by just by adding one more dimension to that, uh, it it. Um, it uh what's the word i'm looking for here uh it shows us that if there are more than two then there could be yeah. like an infinite there's number a, right I, i'm not going to be giving the proper credit to this and but there's a discussion about batman and i think i was told about this i don't even remember who told me about this discussion uh but it was saying uh, the is it bat is batman really batman or is it bruce wayne and they settled on it's actually 
when he's hanging out in the Batcave with Alfred. Mm-hmm. That's the only real identity mm-hmm. for Batman. Uh, the other ones are both performances. Oh, producer Andrew's going to step in and tell me. I think I said that oh, there we go. in Came the from Superman episode, which we recorded a month ago. <laughs> oh, there we which go. Which aired last week but they're as all... of this one area. Yeah. But what I'm so... saying is oh, okay. they're we all performances. This it's it's we all performances. We touched on some okay. of this. Um, but we recorded that one a month ago. So I forgot. But yeah, if you think about it, like, there's going to be Batman to a criminal, Batman to Detective Bullock, Batman to Detective Gordon, Batman to Alfred, to Robin. Ba- mm-hmm. Batman to Robin, all the different Robins, which was going to be a different thing <laughs> for each of them. And then also, you know, when he shifts into Bruce Wayne and then there's, there's Bruce Wayne around any of the Robins mm-hmm. and, and Bruce Wayne around, um, Tim Drake or Dick Grayson instead of around Robin. And, and you get that whole spectrum. And I think it is kind of an infinite spectrum and somewhere there's the golden mean. And I think good writers are aware of that. And they think about that when they're writing a character, not just like what is, um, a character wanting in a scene, but like, how are they, you know, what are they presenting to mm-hmm. whatever variation, like Andrew was just saying for Batman or for, for Scarlet Pimpernel, like the, you know, the Baroness, we're just gonna stop there. <laughs> it was just the Baroness. <laughs> she had to be thinking about like, uh, um, you know, what is Marguerite seeing and what is the audience supposed to be seeing? Like, mm-hmm. there's all these levels of what uh, a reader and then what the other characters are supposed to, how they're supposed to be interacting. Yeah. This, I, I think Anthony Andrews does a really good job with this because, um, especially after he and Marguerite get married, he does a lot of, you know, trying to keep the mask on, but really hurting or really, you know, barely being able to let it through. Or like, or like there's at one point when he's talking to her before the ball and, and he's, his tone is very flippant, but his face is very serious because he's gotten kind of close to the truth, but then she backs off. And, um, or, or in the, another scene I really love is at the wedding when he first hears the news and he first decides that he basically can't trust her now that they're married, unfortunately. And he's looking in the mirror as he says this, and as he has this kind of quick conversation, makes this quick decision with, with some of his men, and then he turns around, and by the time he turns around, he's got, like, the silly, foppish uh, look on his face mm-hmm. again. Yeah, which is- there's some good facial acting that happened in this. And um, that actor, looking at this, it said he was, uh, right before this, he'd been in Brideshead Revisited, which was a phenomenon at the time. Like, now we look at this cast, and we're like, oh, look, it's Jane Seymour, and it's Ian McKellen. He would have been a very, very big deal in this uh, in this role um, at at that yeah. moment, yes. um, even if it hasn't carried on as much. I have to tell you, sorry. I knew him from oh, Ivanhoe. No. Do you guys watch Ivanhoe? Nope. I, oh, that's really good. I have good. to tell you guys about, um, about another character, uh, just a quick actor who shows up. Um, the one, he's one of the, he's in one of the very first scenes and he plays the Duke de Bollier and he's the first, he and his wife and his son are the first people that Sir Percy rescues. So he's, he's got a short scene, but he's got uh-huh. a few, like some nice close-ups and stuff. Um, the Duke de Bollier is played by a man named Timothy Carlton, but that's a stage name. His birth name is Timothy Carlton Cumberbatch. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's no. dad. <laughs> I remember, uh, when it, when his parents That's appeared amazing. on Sherlock, uh-huh. and everyone was asking, like, how did they get on there? He's like, well, they're both card-carrying you know, right. members yeah. of the guild. Yeah. <laughs> like, his parents are both actors. <laughs> yeah. I guess, uh, going back to this uh-huh. discussion about masks and identities, um, I just, I wonder if there's a better way to talk about it than to talk about, like, the real identity and the fake sure. identity or something. Like, I mean, it seems like you're dealing with, or... like, grades of, grades of authenticity yeah. or something like that. Degrees no, of fair. authenticity. Um... I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm thinking about because yesterday I was in this feverish, like, feverish state for more than half of the day and reading lots of X Men comics um, and thinking about, like, 
talk about a group of people obsessed <laughs> with appearance. Yeah. Right? And like constantly changing costumes and and the very aware of symbolic I meaning. Mean, yeah. Yeah. And and I mean it's like you could you could you could ask the same questions about Scott Summers that you're you, that we're asking about Percy Blakeney, right? Like what is the real mm-hmm. who is the real Scott Summers or like which of those versions of him is the most authentic one is it is it after the Phoenix Force burns him up and he's like on a I mean is that is that really him is it not really him? So I think in some ways uh Maybe the secret identity story isn't so different from mm-hmm. a lot of other stories that we tell, or even a lot of other superhero stories that we tell. Yeah, I don't know. Just thought, just thought, random well, thoughts. This is probably going to needlessly complicate the discussion, so probably maybe we shouldn't have this discussion <laughs> here. But just something to throw out because we're running out of time. Um, I was thinking you're about say it anyway. Now, I said, okay, wait, that's a French Revolution thing. There's some other French Revolution ones, and I thought of Les Mis, and I thought of Count of Monte Cristo, and all of those deal with identity and and masks and who are you hiding from and who are you presenting your true self to and then especially in Count of Monte Cristo it's you know did he actually change from who he was did he actually become that that vicious and vengeful count or does he still have that person he was somewhere somewhere in there and so I think that these stories kind of set in in a, a relatively close time period to each other are dealing with this idea of identity for some reason in a common way i don't know where to go yeah. for that i think we're <laughs> i mean i think i think rather than rather than seeing rather than seeing the idea of like a secret identity as being something so like dramatically different from other stories that are being told it just seems like a different iteration of it's a really it's a more flamboyant thing. version I mean, <laughs> <laughs> That you can you can certainly draw a line from even like Jean Valjean to yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Blakeney. In I mean, it's not it's not the same thing, but it's I don't think it's as different as we maybe would think that it is yeah. at first. Glance. It has been a good tangent for us <laughs> to, to go flying down, um, <laughs> but we are running low on time, and we do have a guest today, and so I want to get the question in for a guest, and oh, she no. <laughs> she was here. Or she listened in last week to a recording. She didn't participate, so she knows what the question is. Unlike many of our other guests, who I just bring this on. Oh, yeah. So we're expecting so big the... things this time. I was I was thinking about this while I was walking the dog today. I thought, I bet she's going to have some good ones because she had time to think uh, about this. Dinner party. You get to invite three to five fictional characters just okay. for a few hours to hang out and chat. Who do you want to have there? In the week I've had to think about it, I decided that Jean-Luc Picard would be the perfect dinner party <laughs> guest ever because he would have the most amazing <laughs> stories, but he would be... Um, and he would be very diplomatic to all the other guests and he would like keep the conversation going and he would like step back and let other people tell stories, you know, if, if they wanted to, um, let's see, let's see. In keeping with Edna Mode from the Incredibles would be pretty fun. Um, I just kind of want people who'll tell me really cool stories. Um, she has a lot of, she has a lot of stories. <laughs> and for a third person... <laughs> I love my chair. That was that's one of the best picks that's ever. That's a really, really good pick. <laughs> At some point, like a year from now, we're going to do our favorite dinner guest picks that, are, that our guests have made, and I think that one will come in. Okay, and then um, for a third one, let's do Felicity from Arrow because my best friend told me that I am I basically am Felicity from Arrow. So. Good choices. I feel so bad for her. If she came to a dinner party, I would just want to give her a big <laughs> hug. 
Like Felicity, you need a big <laughs> hug. Undervalued. Felicity, for how much you're doing. I mean, not like she, she gets her fair share of big hugs from people, but like, really. Okay. Honestly, she has a she well, has a really hard time. I think Edna going to give her a hug, but maybe she'll let her card will. <laughs> I'll give her a yeah, hug. Yeah, you can give her big huggers. I'll hug everyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, Edna Mode would stand up on the thing and slap her and like, you got to pull yourself together. <laughs> Edna Mode. <laughs> well, I guess on that note, that will uh, about wrap up this episode. Thank you, Kirsta, uh, for coming. Uh, do you have a Twitter account anyone could follow? I or do. Contact I am info? BYU underscore librarian. On Twitter. And apparently the only library to be by you on Twitter. <laughs> Not really. Just, just but you got there first. <laughs> just the most generically handled one, yeah. Way to go. All right, well, thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. And remember, you can subscribe to the Protagonist uh, podcast on iTunes. And please leave us a review there. It will help us out. And you can also find us on a Facebook page called Protagonist Podcast. And if you want to suggest a character for us to talk about or comments, uh, give us any comments about the, the podcast, you can send us an email at feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at protagonistpod. And each of us are also there on Twitter. There's at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer, Andrews at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And uh, please like our Facebook page. Please leave us any feedback you, in any of those ways that we've talked about. And you can find all that contact info and additional information at uh, protagonistpodcast.com. And thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week to talk about another great character and another great story. So long. So long. So I got. What kind of shot do you get for stress? One right in your booty. Because <laughs> I, so Andrew I had have, strep throat no about eighteen natural, times. I have no ability to develop like resistance to strep throat. <laughs> I had it twelve times in three oh, years when I was in high school, and it's like, and it was like out for three days, like, like that's done. And like they had me take all these different things, like to see if I was like carrying it with me, like extensive antibiotics and it was always pills like i, didn't, I never got a shot uh, they this only do terrible. they only do the shot for for big people but uh i was in high school <laughs> well maybe you were a little high school i was a senior <laughs> <in high school. laughs>